We are going to start our time in God's Word together. We're, we're taking a break from our Exodus series uh, because it's Palm Sunday and we're entering into Holy Week. We'll be in John chapter 12, verses 12 through 26. We're going to be taking a look at the triumphal entering, John, John 12, 12 through 26. This is, by the way, a Grace and Peace 101 sermon. This is one of the sermons that, that forms the basic core theology uh, of our church. One, one key thing, and, and this is, this is going to sound informational, but I promise it's important. Uh, the word glory in the ancient world was a really key term for, for the ancients, especially ancient nobles who wanted to achieve a whole lot. What they were gunning for was glory. And what glory meant to them was the glorious deeds that you achieve, battles you win, offices you hold, things you build, Right? That sounds kind of familiar to us today. But when we read about glory, that's a key word in John's gospel too. He means something so different by it. When we see the word glory, and we're going we're gonna to play a little you know, word of the day to, today uh, as we're going through. John, when he says glory, you know what he means? He means the crucifixion of Jesus. Let that sink in for a second, and then let's read John chapter 12, verses 12 through 26. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that now as we open your word, we would draw encouragement from it, but also that you would reorient the very desires of our souls, that we would live as followers of Christ and so find true joy. In Jesus' name, amen. I want want you guys to go back in time with me. This is a very important moment in my life. I was 21 years old, the year 1997, do the math, some of you guys weren't even 
born. <laughs> I am sitting backstage at a place called the Bren Event Center in Irvine, California. And uh, I was in a band at the time, and the Bren Event Center on this evening was sold out. It was actually oversold. We ended up selling about 6,000 tickets for this show. Our second record had come out. We were on uh, Billboard. And the Heat Secret charts with like the new releases, we were number two. We lost to How Bizarre. Remember that song? How Bizarre. We lost to that. How Bizarre is that? They were the only one ahead of us. We were getting radio play. I was 21 years old, and I was like dizzy successful, saying, oh my gosh, the very thing that I hoped would happen and dreamed about since I was 12 years old is happening tonight. I'm the lead singer in a band that's about to headline this oversold show. All these people are starting to chant on the other side of the wall. There were these thick concrete walls, you know? And, and I just start hearing people are talking excitedly. They literally start chanting unbidden. The name of my band was the Supertones. What if I told you it was like, uh, you know, Creed? And you all found out I was at Creed and you're like, we gotta go. Creed, I'm out of here. <laughs> I can't follow a pastor that sucks. Um, but they start going super tones, right? You know the deal. And like my 12-year-old self was somewhere in there and, 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 and looking at me that night going, oh my gosh, what can you believe? My 12, I didn't have headgear, but mentally 12-year-olds have headgear. You know it. And it was like, sweet, I'm singing in a band. And look at this show, so many people are there. Some girls may want to make out later. It's 12, you know, that's what you think about. Like, we had worked long and hard for this. We're talking about years of no one caring, years of being told you suck. And here we were. Like, it was a, it was going to be like a validation of me. You know what I mean? Like, this is all I ever wanted since I was old enough to want something. Like, that and ice cream. And... I stepped on that stage that night, and I was ready for the payoff. I was ready to, like, be a somebody. I was ready for, like, the, like, surely there is no higher point I can reach than this right here. And I could have wept after I was done with the bitter disappointment that I felt. I've never felt as hollow in my life as I did after that show. I didn't understand what had happened. I, I mean, I stepped on there. I was ready. It's not that we played bad. We did, did well. And, you know, people responded and all the things that I thought it would, would happen, but it didn't do in here what I thought it would do, what I was sure it would do. It, it, the, an image came to my mind this morning. It, it, it's like, I felt like I was trying to eat a vapor, like I was really hungry and I'm trying to like satisfy a hunger off of vapor. That's the best analogy I could come up with for how that felt. It's just, there was nothing, there was nothing in it. I don't know if you guys have ever achieved something that you worked long and hard for, 
that you thought was going to be like the validation fulfillment, the thing that makes you a somebody. But if you have, some of you are, are young enough to where you're like, you're, you're looking ahead to your first one, whether that's going to be like a, a, a educational attainment. When I get this degree, I'm the first one in my family to do so on that day. Oh, I'm, I will have arrived. Or, you know, you're going to make your fortune and, and you're working towards that. Or you're going to meet that person or you're going to achieve that body image, whatever thing people are trying to do with thigh gap. <laughs> Every time we set our sights on these things that are, that are going to make you count, that are going to make you matter. You've all got one, Right? You're all working towards this vision of success that you think is going to fill you up, that is going to make you a somebody. Every time you hit one, you do what? You say, it's not what I thought it was going to be. I feel just the same as I did before I had it. It never delivers. It promises, it holds out hope, but it never actually delivers. So what do we do with this deep longing in the heart? That, that longing is there for something, right? Surely I don't have a longing that can't be satisfied. That's like a world where there's hunger but no food. Doesn't make any sense, does it? How does Jesus speak to this deep need we have for fulfillment? Well, as you might guess, if any of you know Jesus well, he speaks to it in a paradox. Look with me at, at verses 24 and 25 real quick. Now that we, we read the whole text, we're kind of going to go back uh, and, and look at certain parts of it. But 24 and 25, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, that's, that's Jesus going into disciple teaching mode. Very truly I tell you, right? Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and does what? It dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Right, so it's got to it's gotta give up being a seed to become something more. And then he says, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus hits on something that you're going to find all over the New Testament. It's that the way of a disciple is paradoxical. Right? That, that in order to go up, you actually have to head down. That in order to be the greatest, one must become the lowest servant. That in order to have true life, one must die. It's this, it's this paradox of discipleship. Jesus is calling each and every one of us to exchange these things that, that fail for that which fulfills. The, the real the real key to this paradox is, is we're not being called to a downgrade. We're being called to an upgrade. It's just that our vision is upside down, right? These things that we chase after are not what we think they are. And Jesus calls us another way to exchange what fails for what fulfills. So easy to do, isn't it? <laughs> just, to, just to rewire your entire circuitry and, and what everyone around you says is success and, 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 and the direction you should go, that's not easy at all. How do we do it? Well, what reasons do we have? Like, 
Like if, if we're going to be convinced to lay down everything, what does Jesus tell us is the reason to do so? What waits for us? What's the upgrade? You know, if I'm going to trade in this model, what's, what's what I get instead? Well, when we look at this triumphal entry that we celebrate on Palm Sunday, I want you guys to look for, like we kind of have this vision that it's, it's super glorious, that this is the high point for Jesus. But we're going to see that this is not the high point for Jesus. Look with me at verses 12 through 19. We're going to see that people have certain expectations. They have a mission for Jesus. It says the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival. Now, the festival is what we talked about last week, the Passover, the festival of unleavened bread. This was the biggie. This was Christmas and Easter rolled into one. Every, every Jew came to Jerusalem and they were doing what? They were gathered. They took palm branches and went out to meet Jesus, shouting, Hosanna, that is save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the, what? King of Israel. So what, what are they saying Jesus is? The Messiah, the King, come again. King David returned to Jerusalem. When you waved palm branches, that was the way of greeting a victorious king who was coming back to the city after winning a battle. Okay? What are their expectations for Jesus? Well, you have to know a little, little something about, uh, about what, what was going on with them. They were living under occupation by the Romans, and it was a brutal occupation, as the Romans tended to be. Um, and they believed that the Messiah, this anointed king from God, was going to come. He was going to kick some Roman butt. He was going to get them out. They were going to reestablish the kingdom of David and Solomon and all of them. And, you know, that, that the Messiah was going to be political and military. That was their expectation. That's what they're all cheering about. Jesus could have done that. They were proclaiming him king. <coughs> but I want you to look down with me. First of all, he's riding a donkey. Did anybody notice that the man is riding a donkey? Have you ever seen or heard of someone going into battle on a donkey? No, it was actually symbolic of coming in peace. So maybe the mission that they had for him was not the mission Jesus was on, huh? But we see it even stronger a little further down in the passage. Look with me down at verses 20 through 23. I love this because sometimes we just stop at the triumphal entry like, yay, isn't it great? Everyone loves Jesus. They, they want him to be their military king. And we miss the point. Because after the crowd clears, we see now in verse 20, there were some Greeks. These are non-Jews. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. These were, these were called God-fearers. These were non-Jewish people who believed in Israel's God, but had not undergone the, the process of conversion. It says, they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, meaning he spoke Greek, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Now, that see there does not mean we want to get a look, or we want to shake hands like a meet and greet. It was... We want to have our rabbi interview. We want, to be, we want to become disciples. Philip went, and told, went to tell Andrew. 
Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. And Jesus said, show the fellows in. What did he say? That's not what he did at all. What do you think of Jesus' reply in verse 23? He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Does that seem like a sensible answer to there's a couple of Greeks who want to see you? No, not really. Now, this the hour has come phrase, this is very important in the book of John. Several times before this, Jesus has said, my hour has not come. Like after he does a miracle, my hour has not come. In fact, he did not say it when they were proclaiming him king. He wasn't riding the donkey going, my hour has come. No, not at all. What does Jesus say when he's riding into Jerusalem? Nothing. But these non-Jews come to him and say, we want to be disciples. And he says, now my hour has come. For what? For the Son of Man to be glorified. Remember what glorified means? It means the cross. These non-Jews come to him, and that triggers the next part of his mission. He's on a completely different mission, right? And not only that, he invites his disciples to come after him when he says, very truly, I tell you. Right? That's, that's saying, hey, I'm headed to the cross now. That's where we're going. Jesus invites us to something so much greater than the goals that we set for ourselves or that the goals that, we're, that, are, that we inherit from the world or from our parents or whoever. <clears throat> Jesus invites us into God's mission. We see Jesus is not about their mission. He is about God's mission. He is about being the king over all the earth, not just the Jews. And so when these non-Jews come to him, right, like that, that's, that means his mission is proceeding. Why is this important? If we're going to reorient our goals, these things that we are latching our hearts onto, these things are important to us. That degree, that raise, that promotion, that career, it's so important, isn't it? But if, if we're to actually find real fulfillment, we need to reorganize those priorities, don't we? How do we do that? It's by finding a greater mission. Do you all know the actor Cal Penn? Uh, he was, uh, he's in a ton of things now, but um, his, his first thing was like uh, uh, Harold and Kumar movies, remember those? <laughs> well, I read an article about him. Um, his full name is, is Kalpen Cal is just his first name. It's Kalpen Suresh Modi. And, you know, he, when he was starting out, I think it's still pretty tough, but for Indian actors and Hollywood and TV and everything, it was just impossible. He couldn't get anything. The first thing he booked was as a, as a teenage terrorist on 24. Not exactly his ambition, right? And then he got the Harold and Kumar movies. But then he landed, and this is where I know him from, the, the show House. He was, he was Dr. Kuttner on House. I love that show. And, and he was like a main character on like a, a well-written primetime drama. And then there was this one episode where they wrote him off. I'm not going to spoil what happens. But they wrote him off. I'm like, dude. Why'd they write off Cutner? And I, I looked at the news and found out that he asked to be written off the show. Why would he do that? Like, the guy worked so hard to get there, right? Well, this was 
when President Obama was elected and he called Cal Penn and asked him to work in, in the White House. And this was something he believed in greatly. And so he was like, mm, House, White House. <laughs> and it was, it was a no-brainer for him. He, he left this goal that he, had, he worked so hard to attain for, for something that was an even greater mission. What enables us to say, you know what? My, my goals are too small. It's, to, it's to, to accept the invitation that Jesus gives us to God's mission. All these goals that we set ourselves, there's nothing wrong with them in and of themselves in the same way there's nothing wrong with steam, right? Steam is a good thing. If you're congested or something, steam will do something for you. Or if you need to cut your calluses off, steam. Anyway, we don't need to go into all that. But it's not a good meal, is it? All these goals that we set for ourselves, they're steam. They won't do what we think they're going to do. But we need purpose. We want to do something that matters with our days, do we not? Where do we find it? Well, I'm not saying everybody quit your jobs at all. What I am saying is when we accept God's mission, it means that our lives, our, our families, our recreation, our work are now linked up with what God is doing in the world. Sometimes there's a pretty clean, like you're a teacher or you're a medical professional or in law or something like that. You can see how that links up. If you're like, hey, I don't get how my profession could possibly contribute to what God's doing in the world. We can go get coffee and talk through that. That's why I'm here. And some, you know, if you're like, hey, I work in a system of exploitation where we kind of just depress wages to make more money. That's probably something you need to, to think about switching, you know? But what it means is that when we accept the invitation to God's mission, it means that everything that we do matters. It transforms our lives from just marking time from pleasure to pleasure or from achievement to achievement. It means that we're participating in God's mission. But there's another really key part of this that, that, that strikes at, at our, our deepest motivation, and that's honor. We don't think that we need honor, but we're really motivated by honor. Entire societies, their, their entire incentive system is like shame and honor, right? Like it's in us. I, I heard about this one nurse named Niles Hogle. And he was like the world record holder for people who were uh, being resuscitated after cardiac uh, arrest, right? And, and he was greatly respected by all of his coworkers. But what they found out is the reason he was able to resuscitate so many people is because he was putting drugs into their IV to induce cardiac arrest. He may have killed as many as 300 people so that he could be the one to rush in and save them, but he didn't always save them. He was so driven by his coworkers' honor, by being respected by his coworkers, he would do, like, hopefully none of us would do that, but we've all come close. <laughs> we've all done shady things. We've all done things that, that you know, we know aren't okay to get respect, to get honor, to get, uh, you know, the praise of a tribe or something like that. We need honor, as a matter of fact. We need people to look at us and say, good job. You're, you're one of the good ones, you know. But here's a problem with human honor. 
One, it can drive us to some pretty dark places. Also, it's hollow. And it's fickle. All those people that liked your post that one day, they turn around and cancel you the next. You know? You do a great job at work, you get an attaboy or girl one day, well, that doesn't last long, does it? When we see... Jesus in this passage. He was at an all-time high for human honor. Right, like, right before this, right before chapter 12, is his last and greatest miracle, the raising of Lazarus. And, and if, if Jesus was like a rock star, then the raising of Lazarus was like his white album. It was the one that took him to the stratosphere, or his 1989, for those of you who don't know the Beatles and do know Taylor Swift. <laughs> Right? And, and, and so, so ever since Lazarus was raised, he had crowds following him around saying, this is the Messiah. And, and, and he comes to Jerusalem. Think about what this means. People are lining the, lining the path for the entrance to Jerusalem, going bananas for him, proclaiming him king. And what does he do? Does he say, oh, drink in that honor? He doesn't even acknowledge it. What does he do instead? He goes to the cross. He doesn't go to David's throne. He doesn't take the crown, does he? He, instead of taking human honor, took shame, took humiliation, took suffering. How can he do that? And more importantly, how are we to do that? Look at verse 26. Jesus says, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. How do we lay down our insatiable need for human honor? It's to upgrade. If we're going to chase human honor, that is just, that's a donkey after a carrot for the rest of your life. Instead, the honor that God gives to Jesus can be ours. We have the honor of the father. And what that means is we can stop performing for human honor. It means that, that the things that no one really sees, another day sober, choosing not to do that thing you know you shouldn't do simply because you love God. It means serving in an anonymous, faithful way. It means changing diapers. Yeah, middle of the night, changing a diaper. Who's changed a diaper in the middle of the night? God saw it. God gives you honor, right? You don't have to post anything about the diaper life or whatever stupid thing. We need to exchange these things that fail. This, these, these goals we set for ourselves. We have God's mission instead. The, the honor from other people that we want so badly. We have God's honor instead. We, we, we need to exchange what fails for what fulfills, but... When we're talking about when we're talking about what truly satisfies the soul, like half measures aren't an option. You know what I mean? In fact, Jesus tells us right here that each and every one who follows him 
must be willing to lay down their lives. And you're like, wait, is there like a JV team I could join in the Christian faith? And the answer is no. I heard a story about a, a teenager named Patricius. And he was kidnapped from his bed. And he was enslaved, in fact, in Ireland. This was back in the day. And uh, he, he, was, he was treated cruelly and all those things. And, and in fact, he, even though he was, he was raised in a Christian home, he had walked away from the faith in his teenage years. But after he was enslaved, actually turned back to following Christ and prayed and prayed, get me out of slavery, and, which he eventually did. And he went back to his, his parents' home. And he started to get... You know, he, he continued to follow Jesus and he started to get dreams and visions and God telling him, Ireland needs you. You need to go back to Ireland, to the very place where if he shows his face, he's rightful, like an escaped slave in Ireland. It was, if you, if you escaped, the, the penalty was death. And so finally, he, he said yes. In fact, he had to go for several years of training to become a pastor and return. And they celebrate his birth, his death day, actually, by turning the Chicago River green. This is the story of St. Patrick. He understood that to follow Jesus meant to be willing to lay down everything, his life included. Now, we're going to take a look at what Jesus says here pretty closely. In verse 25, Jesus says, anyone who loves their life will lose it. Well, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, uh, John, again, has some very specific vocabulary with the words that are translated life. There's two different words. This doesn't come across in English, but there's two different words for life there. One word is suke, from where we get psyche. And when John, this doesn't work with other authors, but when John says suke, he means your temporary life in this world. The other word is zoe, uh, which when John uses it, don't, don't, don't go saying, hey, we found the word zoe. It means eternal life. Only when John uses it. But, but when John uses zoe, he's talking about eternal life, which eternal life doesn't just mean everlasting life, but it means life without curse. It means life without soul sickness. It means life without twisted desire. You see what I'm saying? So I'm going to reread that verse, and I'm going to substitute in suke and zoe. It'll be clearer. It says, anyone who loves their suke will lose it. Well, anyone who hates their suke in this world will keep it for zoe. Does that make more sense now, right? What is Jesus promising? What makes it worth being willing to lay down one's life as, as Patricius did? It's that Jesus promises us eternal life that we will actually experience what it means to, to live as God intended, to live in unbroken fellowship, to, to know, to, 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 to actually be whole at the core of our being. And again, I talked about this last week, but this is not referring, eternal life doesn't mean you're a soul in heaven. Okay, when we look at the resurrection of Christ, which we're going to do in detail next week, Jesus raised how? Physically. You know, eternal life doesn't mean that you're an angel on the cloud. Not sure where that even came from. Nowhere in the Bible that you become an angel or that there's clouds. <laughs> Instead, 
what, what we see the Bible promises is resurrection life. That you will have an unbroken, uncorruptible body. That you will have true fellowship with other people. Like the, the, most, the closest intimacy that any of us have experienced to this point is nothing compared to the degree of connection we're going to feel with one another and with God when, when we experience eternal life. That's what Jesus is promising. This is, this, is, this is so counterintuitive for us, right? Because we all have survival instincts, I get it. But, but if we want to know fulfillment in this life, then looking to the eternal life that Jesus promises is really key. Because if we, if we have no idea that, if, if we don't believe that, that resurrection awaits, that means time is constantly running out for us and the most sensible thing to do is act selfishly and get pleasure. That's it. What kind of person do you become? A hollow person that way. It means that those who are poor, that those who have serious issues with their body, those who are enslaved, which is tons of people throughout history, truly are hopeless. This is the one go round. There's no hope beyond it. It means that selfishness makes sense. It means that despair is rational if there is no eternal life. It says, it's as C.S. Lewis once said, if you live in this life for the next world, you get this world thrown into the deal. But if you live only for this world, you lose them both. We need to exchange what fails for what fulfills. We need to lay down our goals for God's mission. We need, uh, we need to lay down man's honor for God's honor. And we need to lay down our lives for the eternal life that Christ promises. This is the paradox of discipleship that we have to go down to come up, that, that the very things we're chasing after with, our with all of our heart are going to lead to nowhere but emptiness. We've got it completely backwards. It's one of the most important moments in my life because about 10 years after the night I told you about, my band, we'd lost our popularity, as you will. We played our last show. And um, because I didn't go to college and um, had no other job skills besides rocking the mic, got the only job I could find, which was as a house painter. And house painting is a perfectly good job, but uh, I was a terrible house painter. You should know that. I was poorly suited to it, and I can't draw straight lines or anything like that. And so, you know, it was... The day that I rolled up to my first day of house painting, like I just had a sinking feeling. You know, a couple weeks ago, I was a professional musician. I was so interesting to people when they met me. Oh, you're a professional musician? Yes. Do you have another job? No. No, I did. And it was exactly the kind of job I was afraid to have. It was a job that meant I wasn't important. It was a job that would not bring fulfillment. Right? And... Uh, the first thing that happened is the, the foreman of the paint crew told me to go up the ladder. It was like, you know, two and a half story high thing, and I was supposed to paint the underside of an awning. I am afraid of heights. You should probably know that about me. So a job where I'm on a ladder 30 feet in the air all day suited me great. And so I climbed up there, like nervous as all get out, and I was just painting to the best of my ability. 
and out as far as I dare, right? Sweating bullets on a cold day because <laughs> I was so terrified up there. And um, couldn't paint anymore. I was like, what do I do now? And I looked at the other guys painting and I saw them come down their ladders. Some of them, for real, would just jump their ladders 30 feet in the air. <laughs> Like, I'm not there yet. <laughs> and so I, I climbed down and I, I just picked up my ladder and to, to move it a little further over. Those of you with any uh, ladder experience, see what I did wrong here. Correct? Who, who has ladder experience? You, you, sir, in the back. Yes, Tony. You know. You know what happens. What happens when you have a 30-foot ladder and you pick it up by the, the bottom 5% like this? Leverage is what happens. I picked it up. And as soon as I picked it up, I realized my grave error. Like, it, it, as, as soon as I picked it up, it, it engaged, falling back on me. I was like, oh, God, this is really happening today? Like, the day that I'm facing my worst fear, this is happening. Like, utter humiliation in front of this crew. And, I, like, my thumbs, I was like, come on, thumbs. <laughs> you know, and I'm doing my best to resist the inevitable. But this ladder just tips, and it comes down. It was... It was loud. It was probably louder in my imagination. In reality, it was probably like, in my imagination, it was like, you know, like, like reverberating through my soul. And the crew, you know, I just heard a groan from all the ladders. Oh, new guy, you know. My 12-year-old self could see me then. What would he think? He'd think sucks. That's got to be the lowest of a low. That's got to be humiliating. That's got to that's feel empty. And 12-year-old me would be wrong once again. Guys, this is one of the most joyous moments of my life. I can't quite explain it, but when that ladder hit the ground, and my, the thing I feared the most of being a nobody came true, because let's face it, that's what that meant. <laughs> I was the low man on the paint crew. I laughed. And I felt satisfaction in the soul that I can only say is because the Holy Spirit was with me. I knew that God was at work in my life. Do you know what I did to get there? Nothing. What I'm saying what I'm saying is that when I had nothing else to invest my trust in, when I had no delusion that I was achieving something that was going to fill me up, and I only had Jesus, he was enough. That it truly satisfies the soul to exchange what fails for Christ that fulfills. Please pray with me. Lord, on this Palm Sunday, may we receive our king, a king that is humble, a king that does not seek human honor, but God's honor, a king that does not go after the world's goals, but a king that goes after God's mission, that we would have the courage, the conviction, the love for you, that we would follow you down in order to come up that we would follow you to the very cross, that we may share in your joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.